Amen. Good morning, Maple Grove. You know, it is so awesome to worship God together in this place this morning. There's no one like him. Nothing compares to him. Our, our God is great. Our God is mighty. Our God is, is powerful. Um, I had a great time at the beach. Here's one of the pictures I, I took. It doesn't capture it, but uh, that's my favorite place to meet with God is watching the sunrise on the beach. And as I stood in the ocean, I have my, I have my worship music playing, and I'm looking at this ocean that has no end, and I'm realizing that Scripture says that God holds the oceans in the, in the palm of his hands, and, and, and that he simply spoke this into being, and he is such a, a powerful God, such a creative God, and uh, he didn't have to create a world so beautiful, but, but he did. And the God who spoke this into existence, you've seen things like this, is the, is the same God that we just sang songs to. Is the same God that we're about to lean into his word. And is the same God that for some crazy reason loves you so very much that he was willing to have his son die on the cross for you. He deserves our praise. He deserves our worship. He deserves, deserves our gladness. He deserves our attention. And he deserves our devotion. Amen? I mean, what a God. It's crazy, right? Like, that's the God who loves us. The God that spoke that. Mind-blowing. And this morning, um, we're continuing in our message series, Such Things Were Written. It, it comes from uh, Romans 15, verse 4. Uh, Paul writes, Such things were written in the Scriptures long ago to teach us, to give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises. And, and listen, so far in the series, we found hope and we've been encouraged and we've been taught some incredible truths of God as we looked at the story of Ruth and Naomi, who taught us that even when things are not looking so good at the six-foot level, as it turns out, God is still working, causing all things to work together for the good. Uh, the story of David and Goliath taught us that if we put our confidence in the trust and power of God, and if our focus is on his honor and his glory, then we will be able to defeat any giant that stands in the way of us becoming the people that God wants us to be. Uh, the prophet Jeremiah, he taught us that as God's people, we have a purpose to live for, we have a mighty God to trust in, and we have a hope to anchor to. Therefore, we have every reason to keep on going even when we feel like giving up. You ever feel like giving up? I'm telling you this morning, you have a purpose to live for. You have a hope to anchor to, and you have a mighty God to trust in. And last week, Tom shared, and he crushed a message about Gideon, who encouraged us with this truth that even when we feel overwhelmed, oppressed, outgunned, and ordinary, that God can still use us to do things for his good, for our good and his glory. And this morning, we're going to find some more hope and some more encouragement and be taught some more solid truths in Scripture as we unpack yet another Old Testament event and a conversation that I'm calling, hey, are we there yet? And this, uh, this, this uh, event is centered on a period of history 
of God's people that is known as the wilderness period it's, or the wandering period. You know, that time in between, that time in the middle from when they, from when they left Egypt and to where they actually entered the promised land. Hey, are we there yet? Question. Have you ever heard those words on a road trip? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Have you ever said those words? Now, I remember taking road trips as a kid. And I got to tell you, they're pretty tough. I I mean, almost as tough as walking to school in the snow uphill both ways, right? I'm talking that kind of tough, right? Like, like our car car had no air conditioning, right? We, We had an AM radio, I think, maybe, right? Uh, you had no DVD players, no iPads, no cell phones, right? And none of that stuff. I don't even think the 8-track, if you know what that was, was even invented yet. And so how, how did we entertain ourselves, right? We would count the type of cars, read license plates. One of the greatest thrills was when a, when a, a tractor trailer would come by, you, you'd do this, and they would blow their horns. Like, wow, that's incredible. You honk this horn. Right? Yeah, try that goat over the day. That was exciting, though. And, and, and then... We pass the time by annoying our mom and dad, right? He's touching me. He's touching me. He's looking at me. He's looking at me. Stop looking at me. Have to go to the bathroom. I'm tired. I'm bored. Whenever I told my mom I was bored, she said, bored? I'll give you bored. No idea what that meant, but that's what she said every time. And then obviously that annoying thing you'd say over and over again, right? Are we there yet? Are we there yet? Now, occasionally my, my mom or dad, but most of my mom would reach into the back seat and would smack me. Right? And my dad would say things like, don't make me pull this car over. Right? He never did. Or, or that famous line that we knew he never would do, right? If you guys don't knock it off back there, I'm going to turn this car around and we're going back home and you can forget all about Disney World, right? It never happened. Maybe if he did that one time, it would have it helped us some. Yeah, road trips, you got to love them, right? Well, this morning we're going to be looking at one of the most famous road trips of all time. There's a like, journey from Egypt to the, to the promised land. And you know it's important because you, you know how many chapters God devotes to this time? 124 chapters, right? 27 chapters in Exodus, and yet all of Leviticus, all of Numbers, and all of Deuteronomy are devoted to this period of time. And be honest, when you, when you uh, look at it, it seems like it would be... Not too bad of a trip to make, right? I mean, this week I, I pulled up a map, and, and I just kind of traced the journey. Uh, like, like they're over here, and you can't see this very well, but they're over here in Egypt, the land of Goshen and Ramesses, and they wanted to go over here. And, and like the most direct route, you know, at least, well, there's tape on here. <laughs> Get this cord off of me. All right. But you can see the most direct route. Hey, if I want to go here, I think I'll just go right here. And actually, that path was called the Way of the Sea. Uh, you know, it was kind of like driving up the PCH in, in, uh, in California, right? It was, a, it was a pretty scenic route, right? Pretty nice. It, it, was a, it was a fastest route. If you wanted the route, that would be the fastest route for them to take. It was popular. It was scenic, right? And it was about 170 miles, right? To put that in perspective, that's like from Charlottesville to Norfolk. It's about, it about 170 miles. Google Maps, right? You can trust Google with everything, right? And uh, that's about two and a half hours by car, or if you hit that little icon, walking icon, right? If you want to walk to Norfolk, in case you're thinking about doing that this week, it'll take you 56 hours, right? That's two days and eight hours. But that's kind of aggressive, right? You, 
Because if you, that's like walking nonstop, but you still have to go to the bathroom, you have to eat, um, you have to sleep. So if you got more realistic, say, what if we traveled 16 miles every day? Then you would make the journey in about 11 days. So the Israelites, they're in, in Ramesses, and, and, and they type in the word, you know, they grab their phone, they type in the word promised land, and they hear, starting trip to promised land, merge onto the way of the sea, stay on that road for 170 miles. And they're thinking, hey, in 11 days, give or take, we'll be in the promised land. But as most of you know, that's not how things turned out, right? God had a much different route for them to take and was anything but direct. And hey, if you didn't know this, our God is not a big fan of the direct route. Like if you haven't experienced that in your life, just let me tip you off that God doesn't necessarily choose the, choose the shortest distance and the most scenic route to get you and I from where we are to where he wants us to be. In fact, here's what a lot of my journeys with God road trips look like. I drew a picture of it. Do we have it? It's coming. Maybe. Are we frozen? Well, it looks like this. There it is. And I actually drew that, right? It's like, I'm here. Okay, cool. I'm getting close. No. You know, and I, I got to be honest, there's some road trips I've been on for decades. And I'm like, are we there yet? Or are you there yet? So let's look at that map again, the other map. Thinking about Dora, right? And so they're in Ramesses, right? Right up here. You can see the map in your imaginations, right? And they're thinking, hey, we're going right here. And instead, God has them head south, but make it a hard right turn, right? And they're like, I don't get it, right? Not make a whole lot of sense. And then before you know it, they're really confused because now they're standing right in front of the Red Sea. And that confusion turns to sheer panic when they see who coming. They see Pharaoh and his army coming towards them. But God had a plan, right? Parts of the Red Sea, they walk on dry land. He deals with uh, Pharaoh and his army. And after crossing the Red Sea, you know, they don't go this way. They keep heading south. And they journey all the way until God eventually has them set up base camp at the base of Mount Sinai. It, it took them about two months to get there, all right? And, and, and coming to Mount Sinai, it, it wasn't a detour. You know, it wasn't an unnecessary side trip. You know, being at Mount Sinai was essential for them being able to enter the promised land, all right? Because it was at Mount Sinai that, that God gave Moses... That Moses, that through Moses, God gave his people three very important things they needed. The law and Ten Commandments. Uh, they needed instructions for building the tabernacle. And they needed requirements and procedures for instituting a sacrificial system. So here's the deal. Before God's people were ready to enter the promised land, God needed to both establish and set in place a standard for his people to live by right? He needed a place for his presence to dwell, and he needed a means for a sinful people to approach a holy God. And so they spend about, they spend about a year 
camped here at Mount Sinai. Seven months of which is building the tabernacle, right? And do you know where the tabernacle was placed within the camp? Dead center, right? Symbolic that God's presence was to be the center of the lives of his people. And by the way, God is to be the center of our lives today as well, amen? Does your life work out better when he's the center? I would just contend right now to those in this room, those at home, that if your life is not working out so good, or you're not feeling so good about your life and how it's working out, the God is not at the center. He should be at the center. Uh, and then we read the following in Numbers chapter 10. On the 20th day, the second month, of the second year, the cloud lifted from above the tabernacle of the covenant law. Then the Israelites set out from the desert of Sinai. So after months of camping at the base, they're finally beginning their journey once again to the promised land. They pack their bags, they throw the kids in the minivan, they grab their snacks, they grab their GPS, and they put current location, base of Mount Sinai, to the promised land. And according to Deuteronomy chapter 1, verse 2, this should take about 11 days. Now maybe you're like me when you travel. It's a competition, right? I mean, you are competing against the clock. And with the GPS on your phone, I think when I get in my car and it tells me I'm going to be somewhere at 11.22, my first response is, yeah, I can beat that. And everything is about beating that time, right? I mean, you know, if we have to stop and go to the bathroom, right, we're going to have to make up that time, right? Because we get, and I, I get excited. I got to be, I get excited. When I, I, you know, sometimes I'm not getting traffic lights. I'm going like, how can it still be there, right? I mean, I, I got to be able to beat this time. You know, it's all about, can you imagine Moses, right? He puts in there, he's thinking 11 days. You know what? I bet I can do it in 10. And 39 years later, they finally arrive at the promised land. Can you even begin to imagine how many times God's people said, are we there yet? Are we there yet? How much longer, Moses? You know, this week, as I, as I thought about this wilderness period of, the, of God's people, I asked myself some questions like, why weren't they there yet? Why, why did it take so long? And exactly who was waiting on who? Were they waiting on God, or was God waiting on them? You see, the unescapable conclusion you come to when you read the Bible is that God is very seldom in a hurry to get his people from point A to point B, especially if he knows that he has some work to do in their lives. And listen, I, I need you to lean in here and hear what I'm about to say. The most important part of a road trip or journey with God is what happens in here, is what happens in us. It's where we get to here, not where we get to there. You hear what I'm saying? The most important part of any journey with God is what happens in us. And yeah, God may tell his people, hey, I want you to go from point A to point B. But that doesn't mean that they'll get there in 11 days. In fact, more often than not, it 
takes a lot of time to get there. For example, Abraham was told, you're going to be a father of a great nation. But it was not until decades later, right, that he had a son. Joseph, as a teenager, has a dream from God about the time when his entire family would bow down to him, but, but it, it would take 13 years for that dream to come about. A 13-year road trip full of a pit, slavery, false accusation, and prison. But let me ask you, who was waiting on who for that dream to be fulfilled? I mean, was Joseph a self-centered, 17-year-old, really ready to live in that land and fulfill God's dream? Or, or to put it another way, at, at 17, was Joseph there yet? No, he wasn't. Moses, at age 40, decided he needed to do something to, uh, to help his people who were slaves. Didn't work out so well. And then Moses spends 40 years in the desert Enrolled in Mount Sinai University Wilderness Plan. Took him 40 years to get his degree, so don't feel so bad, students, right? Took him 40. Uh, David is anointed by Samuel to be the next king, but it wouldn't be another 20 years before he wore the crown. You see, God is seldom in a hurry. And, and what should take 11 days, right, what we think, right, I want this to happen in my life, and it should happen here, right, sometimes takes 39 years. And, and, and let me make a couple statements, three statements, about wilderness wandering. Number one, being God's people was never about geography. Instead, it was about becoming a people who would reveal, reflect, and display God's person, power, and purposes throughout the world. Being God's people was never about geography. Instead, it was about becoming a people who would reveal, reflect, and display God's person, power, and purposes throughout the world. Here's another statement. God has always been more concerned about who his people are becoming than where his people are going. All right? Always more concerned about that. It's who he is. And here, number three, the bottom line is that God's people were not there yet in the promised land because they were not there yet. They were not yet who they needed to be. So God's going to have to do some work in them, some work in their lives, some, some work in their hearts as they wandered the wilderness for those 39 years. And those things, that work that God did was written down for us long ago to teach us and to give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to come about. And, and no, it, it wasn't always fun. It wasn't always easy for them. And, and they faced many, many detours, twists, turns, and hardships along the way. Some even self-inflicted, right? Because they ignored God's voice. God's voice said, in one mile, turn right. And guess where they turned? They turned left. We're there yet? You see, there's, there's a place that God wants to take us as a people, take you as a person, as a Jesus follower. A place he wants us to be, there's a life he wants us to live. And listen, sometimes the reason we are not there yet is simply because we are not there yet. 
Many times the reason we are not there yet, what we're trying to get to, is because we are not there yet. Get it? Good. Now maybe today, August the 23rd, 2020, you find yourself like the Israelites wandering in the wilderness. I mean, it seems like you have been traveling on this road long enough to have made some progress. Yet all you see is barren land and a lot of sand. Like where you want to be, what you hope to accomplish, and who you long to become still seems so far away. And it feels like you're either stuck or that you're just wandering around in circles. Lord, are we there yet? Lord, how much longer until we get there? And I, I really want us to see that what if our road trip, what if our journey is not really about getting from point A to point B? Whatever your point A to point B happens to be, right? You say, I'm here now in this, I don't care, a job, relationship, whatever. Whatever your point A to your point B is, what if that's not what your journey is really about from getting the point A to point B? What, what if being there is more about being there here? I understand, maybe it's more about what's happening in here than where we are going. Or, or what destination we punched into our GPS, right? Maybe it's more about what happens inside of us. Well, what I'm trying to say, and, and I'm, I, I don't know if I'm saying it real well, is that maybe being there is more than just being there, <laughs> getting from point A to point B. And what I want to do in our time remaining is talk about six words that describe what it means to become a people who are there. Such things were written in the scriptures long ago to teach us, are you teachable? They give us hope and encouragement, could you use some? as we wait patiently for God's promises to come about. Six words of what it means to become a people who are there. And here's the first word, content. Content. And, and let me tell you up front, I'm, I'm going to, I'll really tell you way up front, is, is we're only going to get to this word today. <laughs> uh, if God spent 124 chapters to talk about it this morning, I decided, you know what, I can spend two weeks talking about it, so we're just going to talk with this one word, content, because you're going to see all these other points, and you're going to start sweating when you realize, like, my God, he hadn't even finished content yet, and he's got five more words to talk about. We're going to be here till dinner, right? Okay, so, so I'm, I'm giving you a, a really good heads up. But we're going to spend a lot of time on this because I, 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 don't, I don't think we realize what a big deal this is to God or, or, or what a big deal it's opposite grumbling and complaining, what a big roadblock that is to you and I becoming who God wants us to be. It's the main reason many times that we are not there. 
You see, God was building a new nation, a, a nation worthy of his presence, a people called to be different from the world. You see, the people in other nations that, who, who did not have such an awesome, powerful, wonderful, great, and good God, they complained about everything and were never satisfied, no matter how good they had it, but God's people were to be content. By the way, so are we, right? Philippians chapter 2, verse 14, do everything without grumbling or arguing. How are you doing so far? So that you may become blameless and pure children of God without fault and a warped and crooked, complaining, whining, arguing generation. That was at it. Then he says, then you will shine among them like stars, right? In other words, you're going to stick out, right? In this complaining, arguing, grumbling world, a content person shines like stars in the universe. Peter, or rather Paul said this in Timothy, after talking about money and stuff, he says, but godliness with contentment is great gain. For we brought nothing into the world, we can take nothing out of it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. And none of you are naked out there this morning, and I think you ate, so we have every reason to be content, right? We're all clothed in here. We all probably ate, right? So we have every reason to be content, all right? Again, if you're looking for words to underscore this period of wandering, it would be whining and grumbling and complaining and arguing like kids in the back seat of the car. Would you just shut up? <laughs> you think those words or attitudes ever described you in the back seat of God's car? Did you just stop it? I mean, they were so excited, right? When they got in the car and they pulled out of the driveway, we're going on a road trip to the promised land. To the prom I mean, they were just so excited. But they barely made it out of the neighborhood. Like they're just one month from seeing all those great miracles, from walking through the Red Sea, from seeing their enemies destroyed. Just one month. And we read this. And the desert, the whole community grumbled. Exodus 16, 2 and 3 grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate food, all the food we wanted. But you brought us here in the desert to starve this entire assembly to death. It's terrible. Seriously? Do you want me to pull the car over? Do you want me to pull the car over? And, and then in Numbers 11, Okay, they're, they're three days into the new journey, right? Uh, they left base camp at Mount Sinai, three days into the new journey. Three days. Now the people complained about their hardships in the hearing of the Lord. And when he heard them, by the way, he hears us, right? Every time you grumble about how hard your life is as a child of God, he hears you. His anger was aroused and fire from the Lord burned among them and consumed some of the outskirts of the camp. When the people cried out to Moses, he prayed to the Lord, and the fire died down. The rabble with them began to crave other food, and again the Israelites started whining, wailing, and said, If only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers and melons and leeks and onions and garlic. But now we lost our appetites. We never see anything but this manna. They keep wailing. Give us meat to eat. Moses, why is it taking so long? Moses, we're hungry. Moses, why can't we have meat? We ate fish in Egypt and it was free. Free, you were slaves. And remember all those great lunches we had at the Bonefish Grill? <laughs> it was wonderful. 
Seriously? I mean, was the sun beginning to melt their brains? Was being Egypt and being slaves really that good of a time? But listen, that's exactly what complaining people do, right? They see every situation as better than the one they're currently in. Either they look back to the past and say, oh, that's so much better then, or they look to someone else's situation and say, oh, that's so much better than what I have. And so they're whining and grumbling, complaining for food that God miraculously provided for millions of people. And this attitude shows up again and again and again throughout this period. I'm hot. I'm bored. It's so sandy out here. Are we stopping at Wendy's again for lunch? You know how much I hate Wendy's. Why do we stop where they want to stop? <laughs> I'm going to go back to Egypt. And you notice this complaining, it starts on the, it becomes contagious. It starts on the outskirts, and pretty soon everybody's complaining. Have you ever seen or experienced that? I, I mean, all it takes is one person in the family. All it takes is a couple people in the office. All it takes is a half a dozen people in the church. All it takes is a mob of angry people in the nation. And pretty soon, grumbling, arguing, complaining start to catch on. And it becomes this toxic river that contaminates everyone and everything that it touches. Well, eventually, God pulled the car over. <laughs> and he says this, tell the people, consecrate yourselves in preparation for tomorrow. And you will eat meat. The Lord heard you when you wailed. If only we had meat to eat. We're better off in Egypt. Now the Lord will give you meat. And you're going to eat it. And you're not eat it just for a day or two days or five or ten or twenty. But for a whole month. Until in fact it comes out your nostrils. And you loathe it. I love it. Go God. Pull that car over. Because you've rejected the Lord, who's among you, have wailed before him, saying, why did we ever leave Egypt? Because you've rejected the Lord, right? Understand, Jesus' followers, Steve included, God takes our grumbling and complaining personally. He sees it as an affront, as an attack, as an assault, as an accusation towards his goodness. And it makes them mad. You know what 1 Corinthians 10 verse 10 says? Do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the angel of death. Like, he killed people. <laughs> Stop that grumbling. You want meat? I'll give you meat until it comes out your nostrils. See, God was trying to give them some perspective. And that's what a grumbler, complainer oftentimes needs, is a little bit of perspective, right? Because when we're gripped by grumbling and complaining, we lose sight of all the blessings. We lose sight of all the good things that are in our life. Uh, this week, I, I read about a, a lady who was doing missionary work for a month uh, overseas in a leper colony. On the, on the last night that she was there, she gathered up a bunch of the lepers, about a dozen or so, and for a time of worship. And she asked, hey, does anyone out there have a, uh, you know, a song? And you've got a request, something you'd like to sing. And, and a hand went up towards the back, and she looked at this woman with a disfigured face. She had no nose, no lips, no ears, and the hand that was raised had no fingers. And she asked the lady, so hey, is there... Is there a song that you want to sing? And she said, could we sing that hymn, Count Your Blessings? 
One more time. Perspective. See, why is grumbling and complaining such a big deal to God? Because whining is the opposite of worship. Whining is the opposite of worship. So see, worship is giving God glory and gratitude for all the things that he has done, while whining and grumbling is ignoring everything that God has done in our lives. It's the opposite of worship. And, and brothers and sisters, our story is to be one of giving glory to God and of worship. But Jesus walked this earth and he showed us how to live and he, he gave us hope and he's preparing a place for us in heaven. Yeah, but God, there's a, there's a long line at the store and I got a ton of laundry to do. Jesus died on the cross to take upon the punishment that should have been upon us. I know that, God, but God, if my house was like their house, if I had a car like they did, if I could retire like they did, God, then I wouldn't complain. And we forget. And we whine instead of worship. It's kind of like God is holding up the waters of the Dead Sea, but we can't notice because we're so annoyed by the mud that's between our toes. You see, one of the cures to grumbling and complaining is perspective. I've always liked this story um, of Snoopy. Snoopy the dog, not Snoop Dog, <laughs> but Snoopy. Uh, like he's sitting on his doghouse and it's Thanksgiving and, and uh, it's cold. He's got some dry dog food and he's looking inside the big window into the home and Charlie Brown's family is having this huge Thanksgiving feast and he is so upset and angry until a thought came to him and Snoopy thought could be worse I could have been born a turkey right <laughs> and I, I, I want us to remember that phrase whenever we feel grumbling complaining coming up it could be worse right could be worse really could be. Say it with me. It could be worse. I know I said it with me. I said it. There's no one, two, three. We had no idea what we're supposed to do, right? One, two, three. It could be worse. One, two, three. <laughs> uh, anyhow, I know you get it. That's good. Uh, and it really could be, right? Because it is for so many people. Like 40 million people Five times the population of Virginia are enslaved, in slavery right now. Could be worse. Two million children are right now are in bondage to sexual slavery. Two million children, some as young as five, six. Could be worse, right? You know, I, I've been, like some of you, I've been to some places, I've seen some poverty. You know, I've seen poverty in Bangladesh. I've seen poverty in Ensenada, Mexico, right? You know, I, I, I can go to the faucet and turn on water. I don't have to walk three miles carrying a jug or sending my children three miles carrying a jug to pick up five gallons of water because that's the only water I have. And no electricity, a, a dirt floor, no concrete floor, no windows, no doors, right? No bathroom, no plumbing, right? It could be worse, right? Because it's worse for a whole lot of people in our world could be worse. 
it, see, I, I think the problem of living in such a, a great country is, is to create a, a, a country of whiners, right? All our problems, all, all the things I whine about, I don't know about you, are, are first world problems, right? You know, we have some houses we can never sell that we rent out, and, you know, I can have a renter leave or have to get a new roof. It's like, I can't believe i got to take out a loan to get a new roof for a house that I don't even live in that, that someone else is paying the rent for most times. It's like, really? That's, you know... Is that really something to complain about? Oh, I can't believe this job of mine. Well, you have a job, right? My husband, well, you have a husband, right? These kids, you have children, don't you? It's, it's sad. And, and so perspective is the key. And, and, and are we there yet? If not, if there's this journey you're wanting to take, and I don't know what your A to B is. We all have one or two. Like I said, I have some that think, seriously? Um, but we're not there yet. Maybe it's because we're not there yet. Maybe, because, maybe it's because we need to reject the attitude of grumbling and whining and complaining and embrace the attitude of contentment. Because okay, here's what I'm, I'm convinced of. If we are always complaining and arguing and whining and grumbling, we will never leave the desert. Never. You may get to what you think is me, but you're not really there, right? You're never going to leave the desert. You're never going to be satisfied. You'll continue to wander. In fact, here, here, here's a crazy thing that that. When you're there, you can actually be in some pretty bad places and still be content. Here's what a guy wrote from a prison cell about contentment and pursuing it. We're about done. I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. Raise your hand if that's you. (laughs) I know what it is to be in need. I know what it is to have plenty. But on both sides, I learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or want. I can, I can do all things through him who gives me strength. Could be worse, right? Could be worse. Paul knew that, hey, wait a second. Yeah, I'm in jail. But for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Paul said in 2 Timothy that, hey, even though I'm being poured out like a drink offering, I know that I have fought the good fight, I have kept the faith, and now there is waiting for me the crown of righteousness that the Lord himself will award to me on that day and also to all who long for his appearing, right? So he's like, hey, I got the perspective I need and I can be content even where I'm at. It could be worse. And so this week, it's kind of why I wanted us to pause here. I, I want us to practice living out it could be worse. And so this week, when you find yourself wanting to complain and grumble and whine about your job, about your house, about your family, your spouse, your kids, about your country, about people who grumble and complain, <laughs> I just grumble and complain about people who grumble and complain, okay? I, I, I want you to say, it could be worse, and then think about some ways that it could be worse. And then, you know, to think of at least two things 
in your life that God has blessed you with and that you're grateful for, right? So, I mean, I guarantee you're going to want to grumble sometime. Some of you are grumbling right now. Gosh, I can't believe he cut off half his sermon and he's still talking, right? Okay. Hey, it could be worse, right? I could have kept that in, right? And I didn't, so, right? It could be worse. So let's try that just for this week, right? Let's seriously, with great passion, pursue contentment and gratitude. Because I don't know about you, if I were God, I would have pulled the car over years ago and put me on the side of the road and drove away. But that's not who our God is. Nevertheless, I still think he would enjoy to hear some different sounds emanating from the back seat where we're sitting. Hearing us saying, God, how awesome you are. How, let them know how grateful we are of all the blessings we have instead of complaining about what we don't have. Are we there yet? Well, part of the key is content. Being a person who's content. Being a person of gratitude. Would you pray with me? God, we love you and we, we thank you. And thank you for your patience, God, because I don't know about anybody else, but you like killed people who grumbled and complained. I'm grateful I'm still standing here. God, forgive us for minimizing all the blessings, Lord, the spiritual blessings in the heavenly realms. God, our salvation, our forever with you. God, you promised that forever it's going to be incredible. A billion years from now, life will be more than we can even imagine. But we whine and complain and we grumble. God, forgive us and God, help us to be grateful. God, help us to be grateful for who you are. Grateful for what you've done. And God, grateful that even though we do tend to be whiners and grumblers and complainers, Lord, grateful that, that you accept us just as we are and we can have a life with you. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.